1: Welcome. The opposition is calling the budget a $41 billion cover-up, an attempt to distract from the SSC lavalin scandal as we head into an election. And there's no doubt that this is an election budget with a whole smorgasbord of measures aimed at key voting groups, millennials, seniors, workers in precarious jobs. Their stated aim is to show us they feel our pain, that they are addressing the things that Canadians worry about most. So are they? I want to hear from you. Did they address your so-called pain points? 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 Four 740. My take is that all of this just tinkers around the edges of a variety of real problems while increasing the deficit. But let's hear from the people who are hoping that Budget 2019 does not earn your vote. We begin with Lisa Raitt, who is a PCMP and Deputy Leader of the Opposition. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Libby. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Lisa, uh, to the economics of this budget what is your take my take is a
2: lot of spending and my leader did talk about that today it's um, a significant amount 41 billion over 6 years but as well there's no plan in there to actually make sure the economy grows so we can afford all this spending that's happening mr morneau is assuming that the economy is going to be the same it's more like a goldilocks kind of scenario but you have to put some real work into ensuring that companies are going to be able to create these jobs and grow this economy. And there really is nothing in this budget that gives me comfort that companies
1: are going to be able to do what they need to do. So you're talking about uh, it not addressing business. Let's uh, get to people, uh, the people in your constituency. The liberals have always said that they are standing up for the middle class Uh, in terms of, Seniors, uh, they have uh, $1.8 billion to enhance the guaranteed income supplement uh, and $1.7 billion in interest reductions for student loans and some of these new house- housing measures. Uh, what do you make of those?
2: So, you know what? Um, a broken clock is right twice a day, I would say. And the, the reality is I do believe that when seniors are allowed to keep more of their money because they're going out and earning more of their money, That's good policy. So I will give them that. I I like what they've done in terms of the guaranteed income supplement because I know from seniors who want to go out and have a part-time job that keeping more of that money instead of losing their supplement is very attractive. Fully understand that. In Milton, there's a lot of people concerned about first-time home buying. And Milton's a growing community and there's lots of new homes going up. But the problem with what the Liberals are proposing is it's really not going to apply pretty much to anybody in Milton because the maximum amount of house cost is about $480,000. Homes in Milton start at above $480,000 now. So no one's going to be able to take advantage of that. And the other side of it, too, it just puts more purchasers in the market. We still have the problem of the fact we don't have enough supply for our ever-increasing population here in the GTA. So there's more work that needs to be done in terms of what's happening and making homes affordable for all Canadians to be able to invest in. I don't think this is the fix. In fact, I don't think it's the fix in Milton at all.
1: Lisa, I mean, I'm trying to think where in the GTA there are homes in that range. I mean, there might be in the odd pocket here and there, but uh, do you know of any place in the GTA where that applies?
2: I really don't. And that's, what I, that's the head scratcher for me. It's all going to be run through the CMHC, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. They're going to be coming up with new rules. We'll have to wait till September for that. But just knowing that the cutoff is $480,000, for me, that takes out the entire GTHA. You include Hamilton into that as well.
1: Oh, now they're that much in Hamilton as well. The other thing that, that I don't understand, and maybe those rules aren't out yet, so if the CMHC, uh, that's Canada Mortgage and Housing, ends up owning part of your house, uh, how does that work when you sell it? Yeah, thats um, I'm never a big fan. Uh, look, I come from
2: Cape Breton where there were company houses, and that didn't work out very well when other people own your house. And having the government have an equity position, I think it's going to limit what you can and cannot do, look, the government doesn't give up any kind of control or power for nothing. Trust me. If they have an economic interest in your home, they're going to make sure that they are protected in their investment. So that's why the rules will be very interesting. But I would say this is that not only going up, everyone's assuming that it's going to be an increase in value in your home so that when you sell it, government gets their money out first, and then you get your money out. But what happens if there's a problem in the economy and your house actually doesn't sell for more? Or there's something happens to your house and it's not worth as much. Who then absorbs the cost of that, that Malone and that mortgage? So it's, there's a lot of unanswered questions. It looks good. It sounds like it's going to solve an issue, but I really think it's going to be completely ineffectual for the areas in Canada where we're really hearing the, cry, the cries from the community about needing some help.
1: There's a lot of money in this for infrastructure, $2.2 billion. Uh, we all know when we look around that we need infrastructure pro- uh, projects. Uh, are, are you on board with that?
2: I'm on board with them spending the infrastructure money they've set aside now. We've received um, a report in Ottawa that clearly indicates that they have fallen far, far behind. They're having difficulties with getting the money out to projects with provinces and municipalities. So putting more money on top of what they already put in the window isn't going to solve the real problem, which is they can't get the project started. There's lots of projects. There's lots of requests for money, but they're unable to actually implement what they said they wanted to do. And that's kind of typical of this in government, long on promise and pretty short
1: on actual implementation uh how you feel about this deficit i mean before this came out we were all getting uh, i guess leaks saying uh, the economy's been good they have more money than they thought so the deficit's not going to be as high but now it's even higher than projected
2: well they found more money and they spent it and that seems to be the case with respect to this government all the time and look this is you know I am concerned about them continuously having deficits. Other people will say it's not a big deal and, and the markets aren't really concerned about it. But that's in a, in a world where the economy continues to percolate along. We're getting some troubling signs in the economy stalling. And we've got some serious issues in terms of trade, both with the United States, China, with India, all around the world. And we're reliant upon trade and in order to keep our economy going. So if we have a sputtering of the economy, and we continue to rack up these deficits, it becomes a situation where we have to be very, very concerned. And this government made us a very, well, I'll quote the prime minister. He said that his promise to return to a balance was very cast in stone. And I look at the numbers in the back of this budget book today, and it goes out beyond the next mandate of any government about when they would have a balanced budget. And that's a Incredibly problematic, I think, for
1: the country as a whole. Beyond uh, having a, a better balance, uh, can you give us a hint about what your party would do if you were elected? We've already actually rolled out part
2: of what we would do, and it, it does focus on the um, the growing of the economy side. We've already talked about what our plan would be to ensure that we have pipelines built in the country that we would get that part of the economy rolling again. If you look back at what happened in 2008 with the Great Recession, Canada did well compared to other countries. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that our resource and energy sector continued to actually pump money out. They continued to have revenue. People found jobs in that part of the, of the country, and it kept the rest of us going. If we have a recession turn down now, we simply don't have that section of the economy available to keep the rest of the country going ever more. And that's why I'm focusing on things like, being able to build pipelines through the private sector, making projects something that can be done in clearing all of their of their um, regulatory hurdles in a shorter period of time, as opposed to 10, 15 years, those things matter in getting the economy going. So we've put that part of it down. we talked about getting rid of uh, red tape that certainly hampers small business. We've talked about not going after small business on, on their taxation issues. Two years ago Mornell came out and said we're gonna change how taxes are, are charged to small businesses because they they avoid their small small they avoid taxes. And we talk a lot about making sure that we go back to a place where small business is encouraged to grow. So those kinds of things, you know, the economic pieces, the foundation pieces, the fundamentals of our economy, getting those right again so that the private sector can grow the economy. That's what we're going to be talking about.
1: Okay, and just a, a couple of things. Uh, they are giving a lot of money, $4 billion, I believe, to uh, farmers uh, who are going to suffer because of uh, supply management issues in our trade deals, and also uh, a large amount to Indigenous bands to recover costs uh, for, for, uh, f- for fighting for land claims. Uh, do you agree with both those items?
2: Certainly big-ticket items. I would say on on the, the issue with respect to supply management, it's an issue that has been caused by this government itself when they negotiated with the United States. They included a provision that allows the United States to tell our farmers how much of their cheese they can sell to other foreign countries other than the United States. That is a pretty stunning um, uh, concession that this government gave. And, and, of course, dairy farmers are concerned... The importance of dairy farmers, by the way, are places like London, Ontario, the little communities around there that are supported pretty much solely by dairy farms. So it can have a a very um, specific economic impact in certain parts of the country if you don't make sure that their cylinders are firing. So we'll see how that pans out. And in terms of the money going back into First Nations, there are um, an incredible amount of programs and funds and efforts being made in order to do what we need to do to ensure that our First Nations people are treated fairly and have the same kind of services that we do in the rest of Canada. Again, it's about being able to get these projects done. And, you know, this government just simply has an an incredible inability to move forward on anything. Great on announcements, incredibly poor on actually putting their announcements into action. So while they'll put some money out in the window and say they're going to give it away,
1: they may never actually get to the point of being able to give it away. Okay. Lisa Wright, uh, Deputy Leader of the Opposition, thank you so much for being with us. My great pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Let's move to the perspective of the NDP. They took a much more measured approach than the desk-thumping protest-walking conservatives. It was much lower key, though what it also has to be said yesterday was only NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's second day in the House. So what is that party's take on the budget? Let's go to MP Peter Julian, who is the new Democratic Party critic on energy and finance. Hello there. Hi, good to be with you. Thank you. So, uh, in the, in a broad stroke, what is your take on the budget? Very, very disappointing.
3: And we saw it last November that the, the federal Liberal government put aside $14 billion in tax cuts to Canada's uh, richest corporations. And what we saw in the budget yesterday was actually, if we just look at the, the year in question, because the budget is only one year, it's not the promises that the government makes that they'll eventually do, they think, or promise to do in five or ten years. If you just look... At the coming year, there is very, very little that will make a difference for Canadians that are struggling under record family debt loads that are, that are fighting to find affordable housing and affordable housing is in crisis in many parts of this country. Indigenous communities have been left aside. And in terms of, of funding to make the transition to, to a clean energy economy, uh, or even to put in place uh, a pharmacare program so that people can actually afford the medication that their doctors prescribe to them the budget doesn't doesn't just fall short it does virtually nothing to help all of those canadians so what we have is a government that seems to be doing very much what the conservatives did which was hand out a lot of money to canada's richest corporations without really putting into place the foundations that make a difference in the lives of regular people.
1: I'd like to talk about Pharmacare. They are creating an agency, and my take on what they've been saying is that they're not ready to roll out a whole program. They still have to do more studying, and they want to get it right. And, of course, it's a huge ticket item that we want them to get right as well. So uh, would are you saying that your party would be more ready to go on this?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that we're, we're the party that, of course, uh, pushed and brought in uh, universal Medicare and Ms. Tommy Douglas in Saskatchewan that just went ahead and did it. The Liberals promised 20 years ago to phase in pharmacare. So they've had 20 years to study this question, and they're still not willing to do anything. Uh, now, the parliamentary budgetary officer evaluated the cost of Medicare. It actually cost Canadians $4 billion less In the current system we have, where there are are a lot of. Pharmacare. Yes, Pharmacare. Pharmacare would save us $4 billion because, um, as the PBO, the Parliamentary Budgetary Officer, pointed out, uh, the, the reality is we spend a lot of money on for profit. Uh, drug plans, and there are many Canadians, about one in five, that don't have any ability to pay for their medication at all. So Canadians pay out of pocket. Companies pay for drug plans for their employees. Governments already pay. If we put in place a comprehensive, universal, single-payer pharmacare program, Canadians as a whole actually save $4 billion. That's why What we take, what it really takes, is leadership and determination. Jagmeet Singh has said very clearly he would move to implement that immediately, and uh, the Liberals just don't have the excuse of waiting anymore when it's been 20 years of promises.
1: What about the deficit? Are you perturbed by that at all? Would your deficit be even higher?
3: Uh, No, because we believe in putting in place a fair tax system. There are billions of dollars to go overseas in tax havens. Uh, the Liberals haven't prosecuted anybody for doing that. Again, the Parliamentary Budgetary Officer, who is an independent officer of Parliament, will be producing, uh, he's in the process of doing that now, producing a report next month that will show the massive tax gap between what should be paid in income taxes by Canada's richest corporations and what is actually paid, and that shows uh, why we have a, a really a, a structural deficit. When we have what is, in a sense, the, the the lowest effective tax rate for wealthy corporations among all the industrialized countries, it's about nine percent, estimated to be. Uh, what that what that means is we don't have the money as a federal government to actually make those investments in the lives of regular people. So we have a deficit because of all of these giveaways, uh, tax havens. We need to establish a fair, just tax system, and that provides the underpinnings for putting in place uh, the sustainable programs that make a difference in people's lives.
1: Well, we've, we've just seen numbers uh, granted from uh, people of the opposite ideological persuasion that show that in this in our jurisdictions, people pay higher taxes than any of the U.S. states. We've seen the Trump administration radically lower taxes for the very richest and for corporations. And, and uh, the theory is that, you know, if we want to compete and get business here, well, we can't be raising our taxes.
3: Well, and and the problem is in the United States, they actually do tax. They don't have this network of overseas tax havens where companies can take money abroad and not have to pay tax on on their profits. In Canada, we don't have that rigorous system. So the effective tax rate in the U.S. is much higher than it is in Canada because of all of the the various tax loopholes and tax havens that have been put into place, uh, fair to say, both by conservative and liberal governments. That's why a fair tax system really is the underpinning the foundation for providing the kinds of investments in people and their families that make a difference and make uh raise Canada's quality of life and make our our country have a, a much more dynamic economy. I did notice
1: just, that uh, they're in, they're increasing tax on stock options.
3: Uh no, they, they and here's another part of the budget document which is absurd to me. They promised to look at it but they have actually not provided any uh, any direction in terms of where they're going to go, what kind of legislation. Uh, all they're doing is making, again, a promise to do something eventually. And the Liberal government seems to have perfected this this tactic of making promises, uh, rolling out these big promises, and then not actually walking the talk. And this is just one, uh, uh, one example among many in the budget
1: document. Uh, what would you like to leave us with on this? Uh, That that Canadians are struggling to to find affordable housing, that uh, millennials often
3: find doors closed to post-secondary education, that there's a whole variety of obstacles put into place by choices that governments have made, both liberal and conservative. And uh, I believe Jagmeet Singh has a better approach, and that is really to put the priority on regular people, making sure that we have housing, we have uh, a, a way of paying for medication, access to education, uh, that seniors are taken care of with uh, effective uh, pensions in in their uh, senior years. Those are the kinds of things that must be the priority, not giving massive tax cuts to Canada's richest corporations. And I think that will be uh, the major decision that Canadians will have the choice to make later this year when there's a federal election campaign, the approach of the old parties, or a new approach that actually is focused on people.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Peter Julian, NDP finance critic.
3: My pleasure. I love being with you. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Okay, people, I'm going to take a couple of calls before we move on to Laura Tamblin Watts from CARP to really drill down on uh, the measures that are affecting the older generation. Okay, first, let's hear from Anthony in Niagara. Hi, Anthony.
4: Hi, how are you?
1: Fine. So uh, you're saying that your daughter still can't afford a house?
4: Well, no. Uh, she called me up yesterday. She says, This, this Trudeau guy's a joke. First of all, she says there's nothing less than $500,000 in Toronto. Okay?
1: Or she the says, GTA. We just talked about that with Lisa Wright. Yeah. Yeah, or the there's GTA. Nothing. There's nothing around.
4: Nothing. But she's saying, like, she had a school loan. She had enough money to put a big deposit on, which her grandparents gave her a few years ago, but uh, she paid off the school loan, so she has no more cash left. And uh, that's it. She's very upset, and uh, she says that Trudeau took care of strangers first, not as Canadians. Uh, there's no way of getting ahead in life here no more.
1: Well, okay, but you, Anthony, you are a conservative, I can tell that. So yeah, do you yeah. expect I, I the want, government uh, to pay for your daughter's house? Pardon? I mean, you know, do you, did you expect more money to help your daughter buy a house?
4: Well, no, no. Uh, what happened was uh, my mom sold her place out there in Vaughan, right? And she gave all the granddaughters uh, $50,000 right. apiece. So that was supposed to go against the first home when they were really ready for it. She just got married last June, right? But make a long Congratulations. story short. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Nice kid, you know. So the first thing she did was she paid off her school loan. Sensible. She's got no more cash left. Right. Okay. So now she's saying, whatever this Trudeau guy's trying to do, it's not going to help me because I don't have enough money. And the housing are, are going up all, at all times. We're just going higher and higher. Oh, in Niagara... Last year, there were $400,000 for a single detached. I just saw a sign this week, 600000 the same house.
1: So what do you think that... What would you like to see a government spend money on that would help your daughter? Well, I would like to
4: see uh, a government not spending money on strangers. Like, he, this fellow gave money out to everybody except our own people. I mean, we... You know, like Canada first, we have to help ourselves first. And if there's anything left, we help others. People come here yesterday, they get free everything, and we still have to pay. So it doesn't make sense anymore. Okay. Do You know
1: what I mean? All right. All right, Anthony. Let's go to Bob in Etobicoke. Hi, Bob. Hi,
5: how are you? Fine. Now, yeah. um, one thing that upsets me about this, uh, and not that I have any problem at all with the uh, um Aboriginal people or natives in Canada, I particularly like them because I worked with them up in the point of barrel area, but i uh, the government is is not treating them right, and that, what I mean by that they should treat them like you and I, like everybody else, like the first who comes in tomorrow afternoon as a landed immigrant, same treatment, but they do not own the land. They can't even own their own homes or the land that their homes are on the reservation. The Queen of England owns it, which is wrong. So they should be treated like you and I. They should be entitled to what you and I are entitled, but no more. So what's he given? Eight and a half billion dollars. They don't own that land. They never did own that land. They never bought that land. So they should be treated like everybody else. So and now we could say that the Chinese back when they built the railroad... They come here and they work for virtually what they could eat to build that railroad. Why don't the Chinese say, well, that's our railroad. We'll take over CP because of the fact that we built it. That's not right either. But we got to treat the natives no better and no worse than everybody else. They should have to pay taxes on uh, their houses. Okay,
1: um, I I get your drift, Bob, you I, and I think okay. that a, a lot of people would uh, disagree with that. No, but I hear you. Thanks. There's for more
5: that. people that agree with me than disagree. It's unfortunately that people in Toronto do not the ones who run this, you know, people in the city. They have no idea what's going on up there. Okay. But if they make them honor the original treaties, they sold out entirely. Well, for, they had reasons to sell out and they were happy with what they did, got at the time, but we've abused it. Bye.
1: Okay. Bye, Bob. Okay. Uh, let us now bring in Laura Tamblin Watts from CARP. I mean, financial support for seniors is among the highlights in yesterday's federal budget. CARP is calling it a win for older Canadians, especially low-income seniors, but the budget did not include many, and I would say most, of the key CARP demands for better pension protection, caregiver benefits, and the easing of mandatory RIF withdrawals. So let's go to Laura Tamblin watts Hi, Laura. Hi, Libby. Okay, so the big ticket item for your members is the $1.8 billion that the Liberals are spending on the GIS supplement.
6: It is a key win for us. We've been very concerned, and one of our national platform asks is to ease the GIS clawback, which is the Guaranteed Income Supplement for very low income seniors. So what it does is it adds an exemption of about $2,500. So there's a, a higher threshold. And after that, there's a easing of the clawback for the next 10 to $15,000. So that's really gonna make a difference in the lives of seniors. What we didn't get is all of what we wanted in terms of the pension protections. So GIS, yes. And for the pension protection, we got about half of what we wanted. So what was included were our asks for greater transparency, greater accountability, greater governance, and where a fund faces uh, bankruptcy to have the obligation for companies to send that money into an insurance which would pay an annuity. So those are all good first steps. They did not, however, go all the way into guaranteeing the funds be fully funded. So there's more to do on that in this election period.
1: Yeah. And uh, in terms of caregiver benefits, it's a huge issue that is only going to get bigger as the population ages. Uh, They didn't seem to move on that at all.
6: In my meetings with the government and the ministers, we raised that because there are a few key fixes that we were hoping for in this budget, the biggest one being to change the caregiver tax benefit, which is right now an earned credit as opposed to what we want, which is a refundable tax credit. As well, we wanted a, a fix in terms of the compassionate care benefit to make sure that they didn't have to guarantee that the person was going to die within six months, but just make gravely ill or critically ill. We did not see those. However, there were caregivers mentioned in the $50 million for Alzheimer's and related dementias in the funded dementia strategy. I'm curious, however, because these are pocketbook issues, whether or not we're going to see these as part of an election platform rather than a budget.
1: Yeah, um, one would hope so. Uh, And uh, I just want to clarify for people out there listening, because this might affect people in terms of that GIS, guaranteed income supplement exemption. So these are the details on it right now uh you can earn only up to $3500 a year before you trigger a reduction so uh right now uh, under the new rules once they're passed you'll be able to earn $5000 for the next $10000 uh the budget proposes a 50% exemption and then uh you 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 will have to earn just under $30,000 a year before you lose all of it, and that is up from just over $20,000 a year. So it it really is giving people a a little bit of extra room to earn some extra money, which I think is a good thing because, uh, you know, uh, God helps a child who helps themselves.
6: It's absolutely right, and what we want to see is more people being able to be actively engaged, both from a social inclusion point of view engaged in their communities and engaged with work. But actually, we need the increased tax base as well. So let's just remember that this isn't money that's going away. People are taxed on their income. So there's an income tax piece that offsets. So what we didn't want to do is keep people away from working because they were concerned about triggering this tax uh, punishment of a GIS clawback. So that was one of our big key
1: asks we're very pleased with that response. Uh, uh, the other thing that CARP for years has been asking for, and there doesn't seem to be a response from this government, and that is ending or easing mandatory RIF withdrawals. Right now, when you hit the age of 71, you have to start collapsing. You collapse your RSP and you have to start taking money out, whether you need it or not, paying money, taking money out and paying taxes on it, when uh, really a lot of people don't need that money if they're still working or if they have other sources of income?
6: We were quite surprised that that wasn't in there. Uh, the elimination of the mandatory withdrawal completely from 71 was our hope. We said that if not an elimination, then at least raise it to 80 and don't count it, don't make people do that as long as they're earning T4 income. So, again, this is this double taxation problem. We were very surprised and very disappointed. Having said that, what we did get was a much more um, complex win that we've been asking for for some time as well, which is... an increased focus on deferred annuities. So this is a tool that can be used financially to allow people to get a regular income. And what they did as a nuance is they not just allowed greater deferred annuities or some uh, changes that needed to happen in order to do it, which they've operationalized. But at 71, you were allowed to withdraw 25% of that risk and move it into a deferred annuity, which allows for some tax sheltering as well. That's a technical fix. I'm curious, again, as the election is about to heat up, whether or not they put the complex and difficult to understand change of deferred annuities into this budget, and maybe they will run on the easy to understand elimination of the withdrawal. Certainly that's going to be a focus, of CARP's campaigning.
1: Okay, well, uh, uh, you have a lot of work ahead of you in terms of campaigning. Laura Tamblin watts thanks so much for being with us. Thank
0: you. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.